Hello, I'm Rebecca Rosewood, and this is Thrice Cursed. Warning, Thrice Cursed is a true crime and paranormal podcast. It is intended for mature audiences. Some graphic depictions of violence and other unpleasant material may exist beyond this point. For more specific content warnings, please reference the episode notes. Hey everyone, welcome back to another installment of Thrice Cursed. It's definitely been a while and I thank you for hanging in there with me. For those of you not in the Discord server and therefore slightly out of the loop, My fiancé and I are now officially the proud owners of a brand new home mortgage. (laughs) I know, I sound ridiculously excited to be in debt, but I can't help being super thrilled to start our new life in the gorgeous state of Vermont. I know a few episodes back with Heavens to Betsy, I kind of manifested living in Vermont into existence. Prior to that, my fiancé and I had only mentioned... Vermont to each other a couple of times and then we visited for about 10 days and (laughs) then we decided to buy a house uh yeah so I have since learned that mud season is a thing and I don't particularly care for winter but I get to be in my house so you know that's nice (laughs) I've also learned that fuel is extremely expensive. Why didn't no one tell me? Anyway, uh, so I've officially tried recording this episode about, I don't know, four times uh, because I obviously moved across the country and so my setup is extremely different. And uh, (laughs) let's just say it's been an adventure. But that being said, why do you care? Typically, I do try to keep my life updates at the end of the episode for those of you who couldn't care less about me or my life. No hard feelings. I don't particularly care about me most days either. But this particular life update does affect the sound quality, and it will also be determining 14 of the next several episodes. That being said, I will not be covering them consecutively, I don't have the attention span to really uh, keep <laughs> to keep with the program, as I'm sure you've all seen. So why 14? You would think with me and my thrice cursed, 13 would be would be a more logical number for me to choose. If I'd had it my way, it definitely would have been 13. However, 14 is the number of states Luke, myself, and our three beautiful cats had to drive through to get to our new home. That's right, Thrice Cursed is taking you on a road trip. So grab your road snacks, put on your comfy pants, and buckle up. From murders to mysteries, no roads will be left untraveled. Oh, and please, I worked very hard on curating the drive playlist, so don't change the music. Everyone buckled up? Great, let's get going. Now, as much as I had wished that I could just teleport myself right out of California and start our drive in the next state over, that's just not how driving works yet. (laughs) So, that is where today's cases come from. And yes, I did say cases. 
Today is a twofer, as one couldn't really be discussed without the other. I mean, I guess they could, but it would feel like an injustice to me, so we're just going to go with it. Just like the Drive playlist, I do what I want. That being said, I will have tip lines for both cases at the end of the episode, in the show notes, and on the blog. In 2011, the Kern County Sheriff's Department stumbled across what is described as one of the most shocking crimes in Kern County history. Now that's saying a lot, considering that in December of 2021, Governor Gavin Newsom named Kern County the murder capital of California. For the past four years, Kern County has beat its own homicide record repeatedly and has a higher per capita rate than the rest of the state. And those are just the murders we know of. And considering the state of California also includes Los Angeles County, that's kind of horrifying. Could just be me who thinks so, though. When I first came across the case I'm starting with several years ago, I recall having read an article about Kern County and their understaffed police force, leading to a high number of unsolved crimes. However, I was unable to locate that article now that I actually need it, as it usually goes, but I did stumble upon the Kern County Law Enforcement Foundation, which says that throughout Kern County, there are 29 law enforcement agencies. Another source states that there are only nine. Unfortunately, KCLEF didn't exactly go into detail in regards to what they consider law enforcement to include, so it's possible they're factoring in DA's offices or another part of the overall machine that is law. I don't necessarily know where I'm going with this, other than to say that a lack of police presence could be a problem. At least in this regard. Let's not even get me started on the history of police brutality in Kern County, because it's not great. Uh, but now that I'm no longer living in California, I might actually get started on one of those tangents. Uh, not currently, but in another episode. Don't worry, I'm not going crazy here. Moving onward. Throughout the years, Kern County's orchards and vineyards have become a particularly popular location for murderers to dump the bodies of their victims. Given that as of 2018, vineyards accounted for approximately 68,112 acres throughout the county, it's easy to see why this would make a convenient drop location. Still, it strikes me as odd that vineyards, which tend to require a lot of upkeep, would be such a favored location among murderers. After all, it seems likely that the bodies would be discovered rather quickly. You'd think with all of the harsh, uninhabited desert nearby, that might be a more logical choice for someone looking to get away with the unthinkable. But I suppose I wouldn't want to dig a hole in the desert either. Or at all. Or murder a person. So, who knows? Perhaps those who leave their victims in the vineyards want their crimes to be discovered and are willing to do whatever it takes to ensure they won't be caught. That certainly seemed to be the case on the morning of March 29, 2011. It was in these vineyards that a body was discovered, or at least most of one. At the base of Bear Mountain, just outside of Arvin, California, which is just over the border from L.A. County, the body of a woman was found naked and posed on a dirt access road between the grapevines. Despite being somewhat out of the way, the road wasn't exactly hidden, and she would have been easily seen once daytime came. Sickeningly, her head and thumbs had been removed, and 
all of the blood had been drained from her body. You would think, given that description, that the crime scene would have been an absolute mess, with blood everywhere. But it wasn't, making it clear to authorities that someone had driven the woman, already dead and mutilated, to this location, pulled to the side of the road, and carefully removed her from the vehicle, posing her, lying prone on her back, just waiting to be discovered. According to Ray Pruitt, formerly of the Kern County Sheriff's Department, it looked like somebody had taken a mannequin, removed the head, and posed it on the dirt road. He described the nature of her positioning as quite sexual. Further inspection of the crime scene, body, and vineyard revealed several things, while also revealing nothing at all. First, it was discovered that not only had they been removed, but her head and thumbs were nowhere to be found. Whoever had done this either kept the detached body parts or abandoned them elsewhere. Possibly in the desert, I previously mentioned. Second, the decapitation had been a clean cut. There didn't appear to be any signs of hesitation or struggle, which is pretty startling, to be honest. Had they done this before? Did they have a surgical background? But then, what kind of surgical background would lend to perfectly decapitating a person? Perhaps a neuro or orthopedic surgeon? I'm just throwing those out there because I've watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy. Uh, I clearly do not have a medical background. I am literally just a girl with, with a podcast. So my only qualifications were purchasing multiple microphones. Third, the woman had no tattoos or signs of drug use, but did have a few distinctive marks. She had surgical scars from a single mastectomy on her left breast and a scar from a C-section. And fourth, aside from the decapitation and thumb removal, there appeared to be no additional signs of trauma. The coroner's office believes the woman is estimated to have weighed 98 pounds, stood 5 foot 1 inch tall, and was in her mid-50s, though it is possible she was anywhere between her mid-30s to mid-50s. She's been described as either Caucasian or light-skinned Hispanic. Beyond that, nothing else is known about the woman in the vineyard. Okay, now I know I said the crime scene didn't reveal anything at all, then proceeded to list off four very distinct things that were deduced from the crime scene, and you're like, Rebecca, what the fuck? But hear me out. What do we actually know based on the crime scene? Nothing too useful, unfortunately. We do know that she gave birth via C-section at some point in her life and had likely battled breast cancer. I say likely because it could have been a preventative operation, though due to it only having been a single mastectomy, that does seem less likely. Beyond that, we can speculate a little. And I truly mean just a skosh because there's not a lot to go on. The removal of her thumbs was obviously intentional, Given that thumbprints are the only fingerprints kept in non-criminal public databases, it's probable that Jane Doe's thumbprints are on record somewhere. Whether that's for a passport, a government job, or something else along those lines, we don't know. We can guess that she doesn't have a criminal record based solely off the fact that they didn't remove all of her fingers. In addition, there are currently four states that require thumbprints for a driver's license. California is apparently one of them, and I say this based on internet research. Despite having lived there, I genuinely do not recall having to give my thumbprint to be licensed in California. 
but it was about eight or nine years ago when I moved back to California and had to transfer my license. It is possible, what with my memory of a pancake and all, that I simply forgot. As I do, it's one of my classic moves. Unfortunately, without her thumbprints, or the ability to release images or reconstructions of her face, Sergeant David Hubbard of the Kern County Sheriff's Office says, short of someone coming in here and telling us why they did it, I don't know if we'll really ever have an answer to it. And while he's probably right, I hope he's as wrong as pineapple on pizza or more than one piece of candy corn. And don't at me, I don't like those things. <laughs> you are more than welcome to. Due to a lack of evidence or leads, authorities released information about the woman to the press in August of 2018. Prior to this, all information about the discovery had been kept secret within the police department. What may have seemed like the right call at the time has unfortunately drastically decreased the likelihood that authorities will receive any substantial tips that would lead to the identification of Jane Doe. After all, lighter-skinned women, mastectomies, and C-sections aren't exactly uncommon, and therefore it'd be relatively easy to forget seeing someone matching that description seven years after the fact. Besides, not a ton of women are walking around with their boobs and their C-section scars on display. Despite all of those challenges, following the release, tips flooded in about a woman named Ilma J. Sosedo. And I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. I couldn't find any live coverage of the case we're about to get into. I did try my best. It just wasn't out there. Now, before I do get into that, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. In 2011, Ilma Saucedo was a 47-year-old Hispanic woman who was between 4 foot 11 inches and 5 feet tall, weighing approximately 118 pounds. This sounds fairly spot-on for our woman in the vineyards, right? Beyond the description, why did people think of her when the news broke? Before I go on, I would like to preface my entire telling of Ilma's story with this. I could find very little information that was made publicly available. The majority of what I will be telling you about this case comes from one source, and that is from the decision document from the court case number E057558, People v. Barayona. And again, I probably butchered that last name, and I do apologize. I did look. <laughs> As is the norm, this and other sources will be linked in my blog post. 46 days before the woman in the vineyard was found, on February 11, 2011, Ilma Saucedo disappeared from her home in Riverside, California. Given that the crime scene was merely the drop location and not where the murder was actually committed, to some extent it sounded like a plausible timeline. Having said that, it would lead to some questions big enough to build a bridge over. For instance, if Ilma was gone and presumably alive for somewhere between 44 and 45 days, why was there no evidence of her being physically restrained? Surely she wouldn't just disappear of her own accord for that long before turning up murdered without a fight, right? In 2011, at the time of her disappearance, Ilma lived in the 4200 block of Hale Street in Riverside and rented two rooms in her home to male boarders, Candelario and Guillermo. I know we've all probably watched Roommate from Hell and instantly freaked out a little, but just pause and breathe a moment because it gets even more crowded in just a minute. 
In addition to her two renters, Ilma had recently allowed her 20-year-old nephew, Adolfo Jose Morales Barayona, to stay with her. He was unemployed and living on her couch rent-free with no obvious desire or even attempts to find employment. Despite the income from her boarders and her nephew's blatant lack of work ethic, Ilma was a dedicated and hard worker. She left her home the morning of the 11th and went to work at her dry-cleaning job. On a typical workday, she wouldn't be home until sometime after 1 p.m. But today wasn't typical. Her shift ended a little earlier than usual, allowing her to stop by the bank to deposit her paycheck and still be home by 12.30 p.m. Candelario noted that he'd been leaving for work at the time of her arrival and Barayona had been home, standing near the front door. When Candelario returned home at around 9.30 p.m., the home that housed four was empty. People have lives, so not a big deal, but something was off. Not so off that it would cause immediate alarm, but just unusual enough that someone familiar with Ilma and her home would notice. Tonight, the home appeared to be in a state of disarray, at least for her standards anyway. Ilma's work uniform had been left just inside the front door, and her shoes were left in front of her locked bedroom door. Even stranger, there were two beer glasses left out in the kitchen, and only one had been washed. Her door being locked was par for the course, but her personal belongings being on this side of it was particularly peculiar. Her renters described her as extremely neat and tidy. She wasn't the kind of person who would ever leave unwashed dishes out. Still, maybe there was some kind of emergency and she'd merely tidy up later. It wasn't long before several of Ilma's close friends became concerned. She had been expected to attend a birthday party at the home of the Padilla family and hadn't called ahead to inform them she wouldn't be coming. Despite repeated attempts to reach her, Ilma never made an appearance. Growing increasingly worried, her goddaughter Lydia Padilla called Barayona in hopes of getting some answers. The answer she received didn't seem to add up. Barayona informed Lydia that his aunt had left the country and gone to Guatemala to care for her sick mother. That would probably be fine. After all, Ilma was a caring woman and big on family. But Ilma hadn't mentioned anything about going to Guatemala. And even more ominously, Ilma hadn't requested any time off work and had never missed a day without giving proper notice. As might be expected by anyone other than an idiot, alarm bells were going off. But most of us are guilty of immediately jumping to the worst-case scenario when there's usually a better explanation. Perhaps there was just something Lydia wasn't understanding? She continued to call Barayona, who repeatedly ignored her calls, until she called from a block number. Upon discovering the caller was Lydia, Barayona repeated, Ilma Saucedo was in Guatemala, and that was all she needed to know. Due to the lack of publicly available information mentioned earlier, the actions taken by the Padilla family between now and the next time I bring them up are unknown. What we do know is what the resident bitchfish was up to. According to the court document, several weeks after Ilma's mysterious disappearance, Barayona took it upon himself to call Candelario and request the rent money. He also solicited Candelario's help to collect Guillermo's rent money. Seriously, this kid's too, too lazy to even swindle two people properly. Not that I'm pro-swindling, but for real. 
Fat Iona, of course, explained that he was doing this on his aunt's behalf, like the good little nephew he'd shown himself not to be. Unconvinced, Candelario insisted that Ilma herself needed to call him and confirm that she had in fact charged Barayona with this task. Knowing that wasn't a possibility, Barayona of the Barracuda, and let's just pretend that's a freshwater bitch fish for a minute because it just fits. Well, he turned to Guillermo. Guillermo was less hesitant. Upon hearing that Ilma's mother was purportedly sick, he handed Barayona $400 who then gave him $50 in change. The $50 bill was not the only one in his wallet. Remind me again, how did this unemployed 20-year-old get so much cash? Slight sidebar, but I genuinely feel awful for Guillermo. It didn't say this anywhere, but I imagine he heard Ilma's mom was sick and just wanted to do anything to make the situation easier for her. I myself recently fell victim to a shysty moving broker, and uh, I'm dealing with an immense feeling of failure. Uh, <laughs> like, shouldn't I have known better? Um, I mean, I got off the call with the guy, and I instantly was like, "Is this is this legit? Did I did I just get taken?" And then it was like too late. And whew. anyway, yeah, you guys have my belongings. Actually. 99% of my belongings are still across the country with my fiance's parents. It's fine. Who needs all of your possessions? Anyway, <laughs> all I'm saying is I hope Guillermo didn't have those feelings of failure. And if he did, that he had people there helping him through it. Uh, it's, it's definitely not a fun headspace. And my situation is not even nearly as bad as this one. So anyway, I empathize. Over-empathize. So due to the lack of an exact timeline beyond several weeks after Ilma's disappearance, I'm going to roughly estimate that this request came around the first or second week of March. Around this same time, the Padilla family had had enough of waiting on Barayona to give them answers. They showed up at her house, forced the door to Ilma's bedroom open, and discovered that there was absolutely no way in hell Ilma had left the country. The entire time Barayona was insisting Ilma was in Guatemala, her driver's license, credit cards, and valid passport were all sitting behind her locked door in a bedroom that had clearly been rifled through. The Padillas immediately called the police, who soon discovered that all of the cash had been removed from Ilma's wallet and her safe, which was found closed, appeared to be missing at least $2,000. This is the amount Ilma typically kept in her safe at any given time. That was in addition to the money she would stash in various drawers and closets throughout the house. By now, Barayona had pretty much disappeared, but we do know some of what he'd been up to. In continuing to investigate Ilma's disappearance, the authorities discovered that Barayona had been engaging in an online relationship with a 17-year-old girl, Yep, a minor. Her name is available publicly, but I think that's kind of in poor taste considering she was underage, so I'm not including it here and we'll call her X. Prosecutors would later argue that not only was he in an online relationship with her, but that he'd become obsessed with her. In the week prior to Ilma's disappearance, X had suggested she'd wanted to end her relationship with him, 
but he tempted her to stay with him with promises of visits, cash, and a cell phone. Two days before Ilma's disappearance, Barayona texted X, Missing you crazy crazy. She asked him to buy her a cell phone. On February 11th, the two had planned to meet. This meeting never came to pass. The next day, he texted, Hey, do you want to buy a cell today? It got late yesterday because I had an accident. But I'm about one hour and 30 from Bakersfield. Given his tendency to be unreliable, Barayona was met with skepticism. He reassured X, saying, Really, girl, yesterday I had an accident. Later that day, he picked X up in his aunt's Honda Accord and told the same story he'd later tell authorities. He'd just purchased the car. He never did tell her what kind of accident he'd supposedly been mixed up in the day prior, on the 11th. And according to X, there had been a gun in the glove box. He drove the girl in the stolen vehicle to buy a $500 cell phone, which he paid cash for. He then checked into a motel room under a false name and also paid cash for everything. But on April 2nd, Barayona resurfaced when he was arrested in Bakersfield. He'd been driving Ilma's car at the time and gave the arresting officer the name Yahir Guzman. When asked how he'd come to be in possession of Ilma's vehicle, Barayona told the officer that he'd purchased the Honda in Los Angeles. Upon further questioning, he also told them that he'd never lived in Riverside, had no family in the United States, and didn't know Ilma Saucedo. For some unknown reason, he later recanted large portions of his original statement. Probably because Ilma's boarders would be able to easily identify him in a lineup, but that's just my guess. Despite disavowing his original tale, he held firm that he'd purchased the vehicle in Los Angeles. According to the authorities, Barayona showed no reaction or emotion when informed that his aunt was missing, regardless of his claims that Ilma was like a mother to him. He also didn't respond when he was informed that the police already knew Barayona had taken the car the same day she disappeared, or when they asked why he'd attempted to collect rent money from Guillermo and Candelario. He also denied using Ilma's cell phone, even though phone records clearly contradicted him, showing that Ilma's phone had been used to make calls in Bakersfield on February 12th and 13th. Barayona was charged with first-degree murder. The prosecutor argued that Barayona had only one mission in mind on February 11th. He needed to see the girl he loved. That, and he needed to impress her. He theorized that Barayona had decided to steal whatever money possible while his three cohabitants were at work. But if you'll recall, today Ilma came home early, surprising Barayona and catching him red-handed. The prosecutor then admitted to having no idea what happened next— a bold move, considering this will usually end in an acquittal. But that whatever occurred absolutely led to her murder. Prosecutor John Key said, The lack of a body, fingerprint evidence, DNA, blood, or witnesses is no reason to doubt the defendant's guilt. He then questioned, like myself, where Barayona got all of his money, considering he was unemployed. Barayona's attorney had several questions of his own, arguing that the prosecution's case was based on a hunch, with no real evidence. He said, They're playing a guessing game. What if Ilma was kidnapped? We don't know. 
how do we know she's dead? If she is, then they should be able to answer the simplest, easiest questions. Where's the murder scene? What happened? How? Who did it? And when? The prosecution has put together a story because the pieces aren't there. It was an inability to answer these kinds of questions that put Casey Anthony back on the street, free to wander around, party, open a PI firm, and procreate. You know, all of that nonsense. So it is a pretty good defense method. However, the good defense method kind of stops there. The defense attorney also had an explanation for the money. Barayona was a drug dealer, and you know a defense is in trouble when they go for the drug dealing defense. Just as the prosecution was unable to provide more than circumstantial evidence, the defense was unable to provide any evidence to contradict their story. Barayona did not speak at his trial. On October 11, 2012, a jury convicted 21-year-old Adolfo Jose Morales Barayona of felony first-degree murder of his aunt Ilma Saucedo after only 90 minutes of deliberation. On August 1, 2014, Barayona filed an appeal, maintaining that there was insufficient evidence against him. He also insisted that there was no evidence to indicate an intent to rob Ilma or that all felonies occurred in one continuous string of actions. There was also a contention that a parole revocation fine be stricken, as no period of parole was included in his sentencing. Of all these appeals, the people only conceded to the latter. They upheld all charges against him. Barayona, now 31, is currently serving his sentence of life without parole at California State Prison, Sentinella, in Imperial, California. DNA evidence determined that the woman in the vineyard and Ilma Saucedo were not the same person. Ilma Saucedo's body has never been found to this day, and the woman in the vineyard remains unidentified. If you have any information about Ilma Saucedo, you can contact the Riverside Police Department at 951-353-7135 or 951-826-5531. If you know anything about the woman in the vineyard, you can call the Kern County Sheriff's Office at 661-861-3110 or remain anonymous by calling Secret Witness at 661-322-4040. As always, this information will be in the show notes and blog post. This has been the cursed tale of two women whose lives were tragically cut short and their tale never fully told. For more cursed content, you can follow me on social media at ThriceCursePod. You can also join the Facebook group by searching Thrice Cursed Fan Group or clicking the link on the website. You can also just head to the website for funsies to check out the blog or buy the merch I work so hard on. That's thricecursepod.com. Unlike me, at least the branding is consistent. You get me? Until next time, keep your curses hexy and your hexes sexy. And maybe I'll see you in Nevada. Not necessarily in... Continuity? Wow, I had this down the last, like, three times I recorded. Um, (laughs) I will not be covering them necessarily in order, but they will be getting covered at some point. So, 
I don't even remember what I said. Elon Musk probably has some kind of dream solution for that, but until then, uh, looks like I had to drive through California. Before I go on, I would like to preface that my entire telling of illness, oops. Before I go on, I would like to preface that my, no, skip. When Candelario returned home right around, when asked how he'd come to be in the position, when asked how he'd come to be in the possession, god damn it, but that whatever occurred, whatever occurred, as no period of parole was included in his sentencing. There was also a contention, god damn it. 